If you would please take your Bibles and turn with me to John 13. Continuing the Gospel of John this morning, we'll be in John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17 this morning. John 13, beginning in verse 1. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During the supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said, he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered, What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who sent who, greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Now, as we begin to consider this remarkable passage in the Gospel of John this morning, we need to first look at the setting that, that John lays out for us there in the opening verses of the chapter. He begins by telling us the knowledge that Jesus had and the frame of his mind uh, just before he sat down to celebrate the Passover with his disciples, which was his last Passover on earth. Jesus knew that his hour had come. We had seen earlier back in chapter 12, verse 23, that when the Greeks had come to see him at the feast, that Jesus had said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then how much more then? Later on in that same week did Jesus know that his hour had come, that it was right at the door. Namely, the hour had come for him to depart out of this world and to depart to the Father. The wheels of the plan of God were turning very clearly. We see that Satan had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. He knew that he had come from God, that he would soon return to God. It's not that... Jesus had no idea of these things prior to this moment. Jesus certainly 
did know these things. But the point of John saying this seems to be the, the imminence of these upcoming events and also the amazing juxtaposition between Jesus knowing who he was, that he had come from God, God had put all things into his hands and that he was returning to God. Pretty amazing on the one hand. And then the subsequent action that Jesus engages in. Jesus engages in the humblest service to his disciples. The hour had come for these great things to be fulfilled. And though Jesus knew who he was and though he knew what he knew was about to happen, nevertheless, he still humbled himself, took upon him the task of the lowliest of servants. And so this is the the setting of these events. And this context is important. And the the second thing that we need to observe right at the outset here is that within this this action of Jesus, the symbolic action of washing the disciples' feet, there are a couple of layers of meaning. On the one hand, and what is perhaps the most clear, this action of Jesus in washing the disciples' feet was an example of humble service, which is to be imitated by all who follow him. Verses 13 and following make this point abundantly clear. Jesus says, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. This is abundantly clear that this is an example of humble service on the part of Jesus that those who follow him are to imitate. But it is also clear here that there is more going on than simply the giving of an example that believers are to imitate. And this is uh, perhaps the clearest in verses 10 and 11. Jesus and Peter are having this, this back and forth about whether Jesus would wash him and then how much of Peter Jesus would wash. Jesus says in verse 10, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. And then John gives us a follow-up explanatory comment there in verse 11. He says, For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. And so when Jesus says in verse 10 that the 11 are clean, but Judas is not, we gather that there is more going on here than just an example of service in the washing of feet. There is also a picture that is being shown here of the cleansing that Jesus brings. And so in light, of, in light of that, we're going to consider these verses this morning under two main headings. First of all, follow the example of Jesus. And then secondly, let Jesus wash you. So follow the example of Jesus and let Jesus wash you. And so first of all, follow the example of Jesus. Now, in saying this, I would not be mistaken. I'm not trying to suggest that we should literally wrap a towel around ourselves and literally wash one another's feet. In our context, this would be strange, this would be uncomfortable, this would be awkward for everyone involved, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty confident of that. The specific act of washing one's foot in our context is usually something that is reserved for an individual to perform in the shower or the bath. That was not the case in first century Palestine. In a hot, dry, and dusty climate where people walked most everywhere they went in sandals, the washing of feet was something that was common, was something that was desired. It would have been 
something that someone wanted to have done to them. It would have been an act of hospitality for a host to, if not have a servant wash the feet of his guests, at least provide water for one to wash his own feet. And I believe it's Luke chapter 7 where you see Jesus reclining in someone's, someone's home and he, this is where the, the woman weeps and, and washes the, the feet of Jesus with her tears. And he says, he says to the host, you didn't, you didn't provide me any water. For, for my feet. And this woman is washing my feet with her tears. This would have been something that would have been desired. It would have been a task performed by the lowest of servants. Some of the Jews would reserve it for women or children or, or pupils, and some would not even allow Jewish servants to perform this task, but reserved it for, for Gentile servants if they had them. So this is an extremely menial task reserved for the low man on the totem pole. And you can understand then Peter's question in verse 6 when he says, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus responds in the affirmative, and Peter responded by, Never shall you wash my feet. This seemed absolutely incompatible and unimaginable for him, for his Lord to stoop to the point of washing his feet. So the point here is that this was a common practice in first century culture, a common practice in which one would serve another. Foot washing is not a common practice in our culture, and as a general rule, it is not a way in which one would serve another. Now, to be sure, throughout the the history of the church, there have been some uh, who have regarded this as a a literal act which was to be performed. So Bernard of Clairvaux in the 1100s or so regarded this as as a sacrament of the church, and there have been uh, some varieties of Baptists known as foot-washing Baptists who, if if they didn't quite elevate it to the level of an ordinance like baptism and the Lord's Supper, they at least had it up there as a, as a church rite of some form. But the literal washing of feet as an ordinance or ceremony of the church does not seem to be what Jesus is driving at here. Indeed, the only other reference to foot washing in the context of the New Testament church is found in 1 Timothy 5.10. And even there, it appears in the context of good works apparently as a matter of hospitality to other Christians. And 1 Timothy 5.10 is the, uh, the section where Paul is, is listing out the requirements of what a, a widow would have had to have done in order to get on the church's list of widows by performing these good deeds. And so it's not, not so much the context of a church rite, but as a matter of hospitality and uh, love that was shown by these widows to other Christians. And in addition to the the spiritual symbolism, which we'll consider here in a few moments, what we have, though, here is Jesus washing the feet of his disciples and setting an example of love and humble service. And I think it's noteworthy that here in the context of John 13, this washing of the disciples' feet is set between John 13, 1, where we're told that Jesus loved his own who were in the world to the end. And then later in the chapter, John 13, 34, and 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And sandwiched in between John 13, 1 and John 13, 34, and 35, is this episode of this humble and loving service set forth by Jesus, set forth as an example to us. 
And again, Jesus intended for his example to be followed, as you find in verses 13 and following. He's our Lord and teacher. He gave us an example that we should do as he did. A slave is not greater than his master. If we know these things, we will be blessed if we do them. The point of Jesus is not that humility and love needs to be demonstrated in the exact same way, but nevertheless, as followers of Jesus, we are called to be humble, to be loving and sacrificial in the way that we serve our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so, we're to follow this example. So, how's that going for us? How's that going for you? How's that going for me? Are we humbly loving one another? Are we humbly serving one another? Those are good questions to be asking. And the good news is that there are many, many ways that we can follow the example of Jesus in this regard. There are many, many ways that we can sacrificially and humbly love and serve one another. But the hard part is that we actually have to do it, right? There's, there's an abundance of ways that you can kind of plug in and, and do this, but you actually have to plug in and do this. The hard part is that we might just rather sit back and do nothing. We might be happy to have other people serve us, but a little less than thrilled about getting out there and actually serving others. But all of us who are followers of Christ actually have to get involved in this humble service and love to which Jesus calls us. Now, let's, let's think about this. Some ways of humbly loving and serving others are obvious. Let's, let's think about some concrete examples. It is clearly an act of love when women serve in the nursery. Those who do so are taking their, their turn on a, on a rotation, giving up their privilege of sitting in the corporate gathering of God's people on the Lord's Day and joining in the worship of God and hearing the word of God proclaim. They, they give up that privilege and they instead care for the young children of the church. Now, for those of you who have ever cared for young children, you will know that it's a blessing. Kids can be super cute, right? They can say the funniest things, make you smile, make you laugh out loud. But at the same time, those of you who have been involved with children will know that they can be very naughty, incredibly selfish, disrespectful, disobedient, and so on. They have dirty diapers that need to be changed. Indeed, if we were to update and contextualize Paul's list of 1 Timothy 5. We might say that what constituted a widow indeed might include, uh, we might include a mark of a woman who has changed the diapers of the children of the saints. Let's face it, there are uh, some similarities and overlap between the washing of feet and the changing of a diaper. Both of these things are humble acts of service, humble acts that we would naturally love to pass off to someone else, but there are commonalities between the two. And obviously, service within the church is not limited to the nursery. For those who are gifted in that way, there are children's Sunday school classes to teach. I'm grateful for those who serve the children of the church broadly, and my own children in particular, taking the time to prepare a lesson, taking the time to sit down with young children and teach them in love and compassion. I'm grateful for the patience you display. I'm grateful for your love and compassion. Again, not just for my own children, but also for all of the children of the church. Others serve by giving people a ride. Not everyone is able to drive, and so there are some in our midst who leave home earlier than they normally would in order to pick someone else and give them a ride to church. There is sacrifice and love 
and service in that type of action that should not be overlooked. That's a way of washing one another's feet. And if you want to talk about sacrifice, how about sacrificing time? As we know, time is a precious commodity. We only get 24 hours in a day, and our days are numbered. We don't know how many we have, but there is a finite number of them. We will not continue to get an infinite number of days on this earth as things are. And so are you willing to sacrifice your time to help and minister to others? And again, there's a whole variety of ways this could be done. It could be taking some time to help someone sort through financial issues or paperwork issues or uh, to help with some home maintenance or vehicle repairs. It could be something as simple as taking time together uh, to get together with someone for a, a meal or a cup of coffee, either to try to help someone through a particular issue that they're dealing with or to give them encouragement uh, when they are discouraged or to seek to disciple someone to help them grow as a Christian. Or you might just try to get together with someone with no set agenda at all other than loving them and generally encouraging them in their walk with the Lord so that you can get to know them better and have a, a deeper relationship with them. And to be honest, it's not even as hard as finding a day on the calendar when you can both show up to lunch. You can try something as simple as taking three, five, ten, or fifteen minutes after a church service and talking with someone. It's not bad to start with trivial or superficial levels of conversation like how the weather is or how the sports teams are doing, but hopefully the conversation can eventually get to a deeper level than that. Every relationship is different. Sometimes it might take several conversations with someone to get to a deeper level, and that's okay. The important thing is to be putting yourself out there so as to love others. Now, in addressing that issue of loving one another by, by talking and interacting, I'm aware that sometimes the way a group relational dynamics plays out is that sometimes, unfortunately, there can be some people who feel that they are overlooked and feel like other people don't want to speak to them. And what I would say in response is is two things. I think two things can be said. First, we as the body of the church ought to be trying to limit and eliminate that kind of thing. Especially in regard to church members, we form one body. We have mutually recognized one another as, as fellow Christians, we are members of one another, members of the body of Christ. We are in covenant together, right? As our church covenant says, we will walk together in brotherly love as becomes the members of a Christian church, exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together nor neglect to pray for ourselves and others. We will rejoice at each other's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. We've committed to this as a church. And that said, we shouldn't have anyone in the church who feels alone. The second thing that I would say in response to that dynamic of people feeling overlooked and and left out is the uh, proverbial truth of the King James rendering of Proverbs 18.24. King James translates Proverbs 18.24, the first part, A man that hath friends must shew himself friendly. Now, on a technical note, if you compare 
Proverbs 18.24, as it's rendered in the King James and New King James with many of our modern English translations, you'll notice that there's a a pretty big difference. And so Proverbs 18.24 in the ESV is is fairly standard in the way that most modern translations render it. And there we read, a man of many companions will come to ruin. That's a pretty big difference, right? A man who has friends must show himself friendly versus a man of many companions will come to ruin. And the, the point at issue there is whether the verb should be translated as show himself friendly or come to ruin. There's a legitimate question of what the verb is uh, that's, that's there in the Hebrew text. And, uh, and so it's translated differently. Now, I myself am not firmly committed one way or the other as to the best translation of that verse. But what I will say related to this context here of relational dynamics, people being overlooked, feeling left out, etc., is this. There is certainly much proverbial wisdom in the King James rendering. Whether or not that was the truth Solomon was inspired to write, I will not venture to say this morning. But it is certainly proverbially true that if you have friends, you need to show yourself friendly. If you want to have friends, you need to show yourself friendly. And what I'm trying to say is that relationships within the church are a two-way street. If you happen to be someone in the church who feels left out, I'm sorry, that is not as it should be. May God help us all to love you and care for you. And yes, people need to be stepping up and taking responsibility and talking to you. They bear responsibility for that. And also, you bear responsibility. Responsibility to reach out to others in the church in love. I get it that not all of us are social butterflies, but let the point be clear that we are all commanded here to love one another sacrificially. You're not supposed to simply sit back and wait for others to obey this command in regard to you. You also are to be getting out there and sacrificially loving one another and caring for them. And sometimes this takes the form of talking to our fellow church members. Sometimes this will take the form of those of us who are naturally more shy and reserved getting out there and going over to someone and begin the slow and perhaps awkward process of getting to know someone and seeking to to build them up in Christ, getting to know them so that we can walk together in the Christian life to which God has called us. And sometimes this will take the form of those of us who are not so shy and reserved going to a church member that we don't know so well and that might feel like they're uh, on the outside of things and seeking to, to bring them in so that we can get to know them better and love them better. And there are other ways of sacrificially loving and serving one another. There are meals to be made or bought for those who are sick or who have, have just had babies. Our family was on the receiving end of this uh, this past January when we had uh, what we called our COVID carnival, when all six of us were, uh, were quarantined with, with COVID at the same time. There was a family from church who brought us a, a rotisserie chicken and some fixings for a meal. This is what Christians do. They care for one another in practical and tangible ways like this. You don't have to be a great cook to serve in this fashion. We're grateful for the great cooks that are out there, but you don't have to be to serve in this way, right? You can buy a pre-cooked meal or give a gift card to help people through a period of sickness or a period of circumstantial changes in their life. It's all helpful. And given the uncertainty of the present economy, the inflation, the potential of food shortages, and so on, we need to be keeping an eye out for each other. And if we see a fellow church member in need and we have the ability to help that need, then we need to be seeking to help one another as we are able. And so James says to us, if a brother 
or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Now, obviously, as a church, we don't want to be funding or encouraging people to use finances unwisely. That's not what we're talking about here, but we're talking about people who have legitimate needs. We need to be stepping up and seeking to care for them. And so if you're aware of a need within the church and you're able to help, then feel free to do so. Or if you're aware of a need in the church and you feel that others might be able to help better than you are, then you can bring someone else along with you to try to help in that way. Or if need be, you can try to loop in the elders or our deacon, and we can try to get those who can help in a position so that they are able to help. We are not a lone ranger society. We are here to help one another both spiritually and physically. This is one of the reasons why we have a church benevolence fund, so that we can help one another as occasion may require. And still, there are other ways of sacrificially loving and serving one another. I know that uh, texting is not listed in Scripture as a spiritual gift, and if it were, I don't think that I would be able to lay claim to that gift, but all humor aside... Just as people can be encouraged by receiving a card in the mail or a phone call or a face-to-face conversation, even so, sometimes just sending someone a text when you notice they've been away from church or just letting them know that you're praying for them or texting them to try to set up a time to talk face-to-face can be helpful. Now, some of the ways of sacrificially loving one another may seem obvious when we, when we stop and think about it, right? There, as I said at the beginning, there's a, there's a whole long list of ways that we can serve and love one another. There might be other ways of humbly loving and serving one another that are not quite so obvious. Sometimes humbly loving and serving one another may take the form of patiently bearing with the weakness of the weak. We need to recognize that the church is not the society of the theologically mature. Maturity is the goal, right? That's, that's what we're growing toward. But we're not all there yet. And no one certainly is there when they begin. Within the church, there are babes who need milk, and there are others who need solid food and meat. And regardless of what we need to consume, we all need each other as members of the body of Christ. Now, in some ways, I love uh, part two of John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress, more than, more than part one. In part two of Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan shows how earthly pilgrimage takes place within the context of the community of believers. In, in part one, it's kind of Christian and hopeful and Christian and faithful, kind of going uh, sometimes alone, sometimes with, with one other. In part two, there's a, there's a whole group of people who are going to the celestial city together. And one of the characters in part two is a man named Feeble Mind. Right? Bunyan gives everybody a name right, that corresponds to their personal disposition. And so there's this guy, Feeble Mind. And Feeble Mind tells the pastor, whose name is Greatheart, why they should just go on ahead of, of him and, and leave him to, to follow it at his own pace. If I can paraphrase Feeble Mind's words, he basically said, You all are strong. I'm weak. I don't have as much Christian freedom as others have. If I hear about other people rejoicing in the Lord, it bothers me that I'm not able to rejoice so much. And he, he basically says, that you, you guys, just, just go on ahead and leave me behind. I'll, I'll be along. I'll only slow you down. It'll be, it'll be hard for me to be with you and for you to be with me. But, but Pastor Greatheart had a, a wonderful reply. He said, but brother, I have it in commission to comfort the feeble-minded, 
and to support the weak. You must go along with us. We will wait for you. We will lend you our help. We will deny ourselves of some things, both in regard to opinions and practice for your sake. We will not enter into doubtful disputations before you. We will be made all things to you rather than you shall be left behind. Sometimes we sacrificially serve one another by bearing with those who are weak and by denying ourselves some legitimate things so that we can be kind and show love to others and help them along with us in our journey to heaven. Sometimes we can love one another simply by praying for one another. Maybe you feel like your opportunities to show love in practical ways are limited. Maybe your, your time or, or other resources are scarce. But you can always pray. Maybe your body is weak and your health is infirm. You can still labor in prayer. We find in Colossians 4, 12 and 13 that Paul writes of Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect, fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for all those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. We may be limited by a number of circumstances, but we can all still pray. Pray for what? Well, we could pray for the growth of our fellow church members. Pray that we would grow up into Christ in all things, that we would be conformed to his image. You can pray for the marriages of the church, that they would be strong, that they would be God-honoring, that they would reflect the relationship of Christ and the church. You can pray for the children of the church, that they would come to saving faith in Christ. You can pray for the parents of the church, that we'd raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You can pray for the single adults, so uh, that they would be content in their situation. Some of them may want to be married. Some of them may be perfectly happy single. In either case, pray for them that they would be content. Pray for their holiness, that they would serve the Lord and be devoted to him in all things. You can pray for the evangelism of the church, that we would take advantage of the opportunities that we have to share the gospel, that we would have more opportunities to share the gospel. You can pray for people in regard to specific needs of which you are aware Prayer is one of the means that God uses to bring about his purposes in the world. And so even if you feel that you can't do much, you can't give somebody a ride, you can't help someone with a financial need, you can't help with the paperwork, you can't help with the car repair, you can still pray. You can pray. And we know, as James tells us in James 5, that the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Sometimes humbly loving one another can take the form of forgiveness. Let's face it, as Christians, we all still sin, and we often sin against one another. The words of Ephesians 4.32 were to the church of Ephesus, where real people, real Christians, really sinned against one another. And Paul says there, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. In a sinful world... People walking through life together are going to sin against one another. This happens in marriage. This happens in family life. This happens in the life of the church as well. And we're called to humble ourselves, to put aside our pride, and to forgive just as God in Christ has forgiven us. And that can be hard. Back in the day when I worked nights for UPS in Louisville, there were were some interesting characters that I got to meet. UPS was like maybe the second largest employer in Louisville, so there's 
A lot of people that work there, and especially working the night shift. You know, you, you, you meet all kinds of folks when you, when you work the night shift. And one of the things that I observed there is that it's not uncommon for people of the world to get into petty arguments. And they talk about how they don't like each other, they cuss each other out, and all of that. This, this is not surprising. What might be surprising, though, is that maybe a couple hours further into the night or maybe a night or two later, these same people who were just having this altercation were talking together, joking together, bumming cigarettes off of each other, just like nothing had ever happened. And in my mind, back in the day, as I was thinking about this, I contrasted this with sometimes the behavior that we see within the church. How many times is it that sometimes good and sincere Christians have a bad experience with a brother or a sister, they get offended, whether the offense is big or small, whether the offense is real, or whether it is simply a matter of perception on the part of the one who feels offended, they have this bad experience, whatever it is, instead of doing the, the humble and loving thing of talking to the brother or sister and, and extending forgiveness, instead they go off and persist in their being offended and they bear a long and bitter grudge. Brothers and sisters, this ought not to be. If the children of the world are able to move past their grievances better than we are, that's, that's pretty telling. And it is telling against us. Certainly we have to hold one another to higher standards than the people of the world. We understand that. We expect Christians to behave like Christians. But if we have higher standards for their conduct towards us, then we should also be much more quick to forgive because we ourselves have been forgiven much. And we need to recognize that Whatever offenses have been committed against us, that is nothing compared to the offenses which we have committed against God, for which offenses we have been forgiven through Christ. Here in John 13, we see Jesus humbling himself. Indeed, he humbled himself all throughout his incarnation. By becoming a man, he took upon him the form of a servant. And in the climax of everything that was happening to him, knowing that his departure from the world was about to come, he humbled himself and loved the disciples in this amazing way. And as such, he has given us an example that we should follow in his steps. None of us is too great or too high or too mighty to follow Christ in humble service. As he says in John 17, if you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. There's a blessing in following Jesus in this way. And that brings us to our second point for this morning, much, much more briefly here upon the second point, which is, let Jesus wash you. As we've seen, this, this action of Jesus is both an example of humble service, but it's also a picture of the, the cleansing that Jesus gives to his people. Again, this is most clear in verses 10 and 11, that this is pointing toward spiritual cleansing. And I also think we see it again in verses 8 and 9, in Jesus' interaction with Peter, when Peter would have prevented Jesus from serving him in this way. And then Jesus replied by saying, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Now, D.A. Carson commented on this verse, I think, helpfully. He says, If there were nothing more at stake than the naked act of foot washing, Jesus' response would seem petty, unbearably rigid. It would sound like fake humility. I command you to let me be humble and let me wash you, or you're fired. Right? That's, that's, not, that's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is pointing to this act of, of cleansing that is, is pointed here. And when we understand that Jesus is talking about the cleansing that he brings, then of course, unless Jesus washes us spiritually, we have no part in him. 
Unless our sins are taken away from us by the washing of regeneration, we don't belong to Jesus. This washing is by grace alone, through faith alone, as we trust in Jesus, that he is the Son of God who came into the world to make atonement for our sins through his death on the cross. As Jesus said to the Jews in John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. In other words, you'll die unwashed. You'll still have your sins on you and therefore be under the judgment of God when you die. This being the case, then, the way of escape is clear. It's to believe in Christ, to come to him as helpless and to receive his help, to come to him with nothing to commend ourselves to him, to throw ourselves completely upon his mercy and grace and find from him forgiveness, acceptance, and washing. We'll be clean, cleansed from all of our filthiness, all of our sins, if we come to Christ in faith. And this indeed is what has already happened to all who are true members of Christ's church. And so Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, where he said that Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Such is the cleansing that Jesus brings to his people. But it's also worth observing that here in verses 9 and 10, Jesus' conversation with Peter seems to indicate that the washing of the feet, as opposed to the washing of the bath, is in reference to something more particular than the general cleansing which is required for us as believers. Once Peter hears that he has to be washed by Jesus in order to have a part in Jesus, he says to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. In other words, give me, give me a full bath. Wash all of me. But Jesus says, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but he is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. And so by speaking in this way, Jesus seems to indicate a, a difference between the initial cleansing, that is the, the getting of a bath, on the one hand, versus a subsequent cleansing, the washing of the feet. And inasmuch as it is clear that Jesus is using this as a symbol of, of spiritual cleansing, he points, I think, to the distinction of our initial cleansing as Christians, the washing of regeneration, as Paul calls it in Titus 3.8, the difference between, between that initial bath and our subsequent washings, the, the cleansing of the dirt off of us from day to day. For we've already had a bath, we've already become clean, we are clean, but yet we still sin. We still need to apply to the Lord for the washing of forgiveness. Now the initial washing, the washing of regeneration, the bath, is the big one. This is the washing that completely cleans us. But our feet still do get dirty. And therefore, we must continue to go to Jesus to be cleansed of those sins which contaminate us from day to day. And this is why when the disciples asked Jesus how to pray, part of the prayer which Jesus taught them was, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Jesus didn't simply say, well, once you've trusted in me, you've been forgiven. There's no need to, to ever ask again. He said, this is how you ought to pray. And this is why we find in 1 John chapter 1, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John's writing here to Christians. He's writing to people who've had their bath, people who are clean, but yet he urges them to to confess their sins and assures them that he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To put it in the symbolic terms of John 13, 1 John chapter 1 is urging Christians to let Jesus wash their feet. Martin Luther was preaching on the Lord's Prayer once, and he said, Now comes our life, which we cannot lead without sinning. For the flesh is anxious for the belly, and has evil lusts and loves, hatred, anger, envy, and wicked whims, so that we sin daily in words, deeds, and thoughts, in what we do and fail to do. This petition, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, therefore serves those who are conscious of their sins. May everyone acknowledge the need which he feels. I do not do enough in my office of preaching. You, captain, prince, husband, wife, do not do enough in your office either. I do not do enough for my neighbor. Therefore, we must pray daily for the forgiveness of sins. And so it is. We must pray for the forgiveness of sins. We must let Jesus cleanse us. And so come to Jesus for the bath if you've never been washed at all. And come to him for the washing of the daily forgiveness if you've already had a bath. We sang from Psalm 32 earlier this morning in which David speaks about the the blessedness of the forgiveness of sins and the inner turmoil that haunted him when he was silent about his sins. And I think that David was speaking there of his experience as a believer. Right, Our sins can haunt us and disturb us internally if we do not come to the Lord with them and seek the cleansing which we need. And so come to Jesus for the cleansing and keep coming day by day. Keep coming to Jesus for the cleansing because, praise be to God, Jesus is more than willing to wash us once again. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the the love of Christ, his humility. Lord, we pray that we would imitate that love here in our midst and with others uh, that we interact with. Lord, we pray that you would Help us to grasp the, the greatness of the cleansing that is ours in Christ, having come to him by faith and been washed clean of all of our sins. And Lord, we ask that you would help us, that we would never hesitate to come to you, but that we would be quick to come to you and seek your forgiveness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.